right. So this is The Social Brain, Episode 5. Today we're going to be talking about uh, something that's still really confusing in the field. What is an emotion? Uh, I think that there's a lot of kind of semantics here, trying to understand how to really define this. Um, but I think there's a, there's a really good quote that really captures this, that, you know, everyone knows what an emotion is until they're asked to define it. And then it's like, uh, I don't know. So uh, I'm Taylor Guthrie. Uh, I run the channel, The Cellular Republic on YouTube. And uh, I have lectures on cognitive neuroscience, on group dynamics. I'm a social neuroscientist myself. Uh, and this is Andrew Cooperstein. So, yeah, and I run the channel Sense of Mind, and uh, talk about neuroscience and how it relates to your life and uh, how the brain works in general. Um, but yeah, like Taylor said, today we're going to be addressing this question of what is an emotion, and you know, like he just said, we all kind of have this idea of of in our heads what an emotion is, but um, I think we'll see throughout this episode that it's a little bit unintuitive, some of the science uh, about what neuroscientists and psychologists have discovered about emotion. So, um, yeah, I think we'll we'll probably just jump into that. Yeah. And I think uh, I always like to start with a little bit of context to see kind of where these these theories are kind of emerging from. Because uh, there's there's a lot, there's always been this huge debate, I mean, from philosophy into kind of the birth of psychology and neuroscience around really what the emotion actually is. Is it the physiology? Is it our body and all of these kind of physiological processes? And it's this kind of global awareness of that. Or are emotions just this brain activity uh, that are kind of con disconnected in a way from that? Uh, and so I think something really good to start with and something that I think is going to frame the entire episode is that a lot of the debate uh, that started over 100 years ago that's still like really big today is this idea between whether or not there are basic emotions. So if you've ever seen Inside Out, the Pixar movie, this idea that there are these kind of uh, happy and angry and sad, uh, they're supposed to be another category surprise, but they couldn't have a surprise character because you can't make someone that just looks surprised all the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the other side of that is that, you know, there's not really these basic emotions. There's not these kind of signatures, these circuits in the brain that are specific for happiness or sadness or whatever it is. Um, and that really it's more of this kind of constructionist labeling perspective that our body is just kind of making guesses about how we feel based on how good or bad or how awake or not awake we are. Um, so I think a good place to start is with Darwin and James, uh, Charles Darwin and William James. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just want to throw something out there before we get into all the different theories and some of the history. Um, I think it might be useful if you, in the audience, if you think about an experience of emotion, maybe that you've had recently, or maybe something that you have been feeling a lot lately, um, and just try to to keep that experience of, of what it's like to feel an emotion in your head while we're discussing these various theories, because at first some of them can sound really unintuitive and um, like, oh, what, there's no such thing as as anger or and that's not exactly the, the way that the theorists would characterize it. But I think as you go through this, um, you'll be surprised that you can kind of fit that experience of an emotion onto 
any of these theories. And um, so then it really comes down to what's the evidence for them? What are the arguments? Um, but like Taylor said, we're going to start with William James and Charles Darwin. And I guess we should start with Darwin because he was a little bit earlier than James. And Darwin is, of course, the discoverer of the theory of um, natural select or evolution by natural selection. Mm -hmm. But he was also something of a, a psychologist and probably the, the first evolutionary uh, psychological thinker. And his basic idea was that emotions are these very specific reactions to environmental stimuli and uh, that that have a a neurophysiological underpinning that is specific to each emotion. I don't think he specifically defined what, if there were basic emotions like anger, sadness, happiness, I think he would agree that there probably were. And actually, if you read his early work, the expression of emotions in man and animals, um, he go, he goes so far as to say that insects and, uh, and, all animals down to down to insects pretty much experience emotion and that they have specific emotions uh, and that these are are a par part of the expression of them. It's called the expression of emotions is in the face and the facial muscles. And um, he even he would look he he has observations in that book of of various mammals and humans, of course, but also dogs. He'll talk about how dogs smile or, or scowl. <laughs> and, um, so that was, I think that's kind of the, the beginning of the, the evolutionary understanding of emotions. And it was, it was very much on the side of, of basic emotions because they were supposedly innate. There was some evolutionary advantage to feeling happy or to feeling angry. Um, and that that emotional state inferred some advantage on the animals and allowed them to survive longer. Uh, and I like what you said about the facial expressions too, because there was this really interesting experiment that was done, I think uh, a little bit after Darwin, but it was kind of based on his ideas. There's this guy that had complete face paralysis. So he couldn't make any facial expressions at all. And they figured out that if they used electrodes, they could actually like zap certain parts of his face and get him to smile or get him to scowl. Uh, all of these facial expressions that were supposedly like representative of specific emotions. Um, and I think faces are a really important thing to focus on because that became kind of uh, the, the underlying like thing that we looked for when we were looking for emotions that kind of survived pretty long into psychology uh, with uh, Ekman who became really big in the emotional world. Um, he was he was really interesting because he actually sought to disprove Darwin. He thought that like emotions are not innate, that there's there's these they're socially learned, that the reason we smile is because we see other people smile. The reason we scowl is because that's what we see people do when they're in these angry situations. Um, and so he thought that if he went to all of these different cultures, that he would find specific facial expressions that were different based on these like socially learned cues. And he found the exact opposite. He kind of disproved what he was setting out to find because he found that if you went to these like indigenous tribes in Africa, they were still scowling when they were angry. They were still smiling when they were happy. There were these just like expressions that people have. And this is really important going forward because there's been a lot of work that's been trying to disprove that. 
Yeah, and and um, some of those experiments were that he would show these um, African tribes people uh, pictures of people um, showing various expressions and then ask them to match those to an emotional state. And um, that I think is, is some of the, the uh, or the, the crux of, of the disagreement. But bef before we, well, at least on, on facial expressions, if whether how valid that research is, but um, before we get to that, I guess we should backtrack to talk about William James a little bit because he was, um, a little bit after, but still a contemporary of Darwin. And he was very interested in uh, evolution. He was maybe the real first evolutionary psychologist because he was actually a, a psychologist. Um, but maybe, Taylor, do you want to talk a little bit about how he his views of emotions differed from Darwin? Yeah, and I think William James really kind of set the stage for a lot of these other um, theories that are now emerging, which which we're really going to get to. We want to spend a lot of this conversation really talking about kind of the modern contemporary views. Uh, William James was kind of on the other side of Darwin. He didn't think that there were these innate emotions that we had. Uh, he thought that all of this was kind of driven by by the physiology, and it was kind of this this labeling process that um, when Let's, uh, there's this example that's always used throughout like all of emotional stuff of being chased by a bear. I don't know why it's like the most common <laughs> example. Yeah. Uh, but uh, his idea was like, okay, you see a bear and your body goes into this like fight or flight zone, right? Your, your heart starts beating, you start sweating, uh, you get like tremors and you start to run. But the emotion itself is you kind of reflecting on all of that physiology and then based on kind of the context and the whatever's going on saying like, okay, this is, this is fear, right? Um, it's not that there was this specific thing that was fear. It was more of this like cognitive process. Uh, and there's this really good quote from him that's uh, kind of setting aside this um, that emotions can't be purely cognitive because if they were, they would just be like pale and dry and colorless without anything. I mean, it, it, it depends on the physiology. Uh, it needs the physiology. But I think one of the things that, that William James maybe got wrong or that is, is kind of has evolved uh, is that he believed that there were like physiological signatures that like this, this response right now is a signature of anger. Um, and that, and that we we'll kind of get kind into of that. cognitively reflect on that state and then say, oh, this is anger mm -hmm. um, rather than the moment we, we feel it, we realize it's anger. But like as we feel it and we take into account the context, then that's what our our experience of or our labeling of that emotion is, is that a good characterization of that. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the big distinctions too is that uh, I think there were a lot of people at this time that thought that the emotion the emotion started as a cognitive thing where you see this bear and you tell yourself I am afraid and then that whole cognitive process of saying I'm afraid kicks off all of the physiology. Where with him he was like no, the physiology has to come first that you have to feel afraid. You have to feel all of these things happening in your body to actually be able to label that as fear. That fear is not this purely just like brain activity thing kind of divorced from the activity of your body. Yeah. Yeah. And I think 
that that kind of leads us into, I guess, what was the next? Um, it was it wasn't a full refutation of the James uh, William James and and then Carl Lang were the kind of the forefathers of that theory that we were just talking about, um, where you you feel the feeling and then you interpret it as an emotional state uh, based on both the the signature the physiological signature and the context kind of put together. Um, but then it was it was Cannon and Bard who came up with that the physiology itself, the the feeling in your body is kind of rather nonspecific across these emotions. And so the context and our own kind of nature, who we are, those things are are what we actually or what are actually the emotions. The feelings are nonspecific. Um, they're required for the emotion, but then it's the context that's really the, the crux of it. And they were, Cannon and Bard were the first ones to start actually using animals as models of this. Um, they had they had a cat that they actually severed the connections between kind of the, the midbrain, where a lot of this kind of emotional physiology stuff is supposedly happening, from the cortex, where some of the cognitive stuff is supposed to be happening. Um, and so technically, the cat couldn't feel afraid. Uh, but the cat was still like you put a dog in the room with it and the cat was still bowing up. It was still having these kind of reactions that you would label as like fear or aggression or something like that uh, without actually having access to the feelings from the body. Um, and Cannon and Bard, like you said, they were they were kind of on this this track of like, OK, my my heart beats really fast when I'm scared, but it also beats really fast when I'm excited right? There's, there's way too many kind of physiological things to be able to say, like, this is just this one emotion or just this one emotion, uh, like James maybe was saying. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, I think with the, the experiment with the cat, some people could, could find some, some problems with it. Just, I mean, how do we know that the cat isn't feeling the feeling, right? It could be that even though the cortex doesn't have access to those um, midbrain structures and the signals coming from the body, uh, what's to say that the midbrain structures can't aren't capable of, of some sort of conscious feeling of that state? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and the other side of it too is uh, this really sparked a lot of debate on whether or not we could even study emotion in animals. Uh, because the hallmark of studying emotions in humans is having humans actually tell us what they feel, right? They, there's a subjective feeling that's like, I'm happy, and that's why I did that. And you can experimentally say, okay, this person said they're happy, and they did that. Whereas with animals, you have to guess just based on their behavior, whether or not they're happy or angry or sad. Or And there's a lot of researchers that have moved very far away from that and said that like, we can't anthropomorphize. We can't say that just because this is how I feel when I'm sad or when I'm angry or when I'm happy, that if they're doing something similar behaviorally, that they're also feeling those things. Uh, and there's there's some researchers that say that like animals don't have any conscious feeling at all because they don't have the same kind of consciousness that we do to actually experience it subjectively. Yeah, which I don't know. It just that I, I've always, that view has always struck me as like, a little bit, uh, um, I don't know, human chauvinist type of uh, <laughs> attitude. Like, 
it's uh, it just seems impossible that I mean, or implausible that if you were to threaten, uh, you know, a, a mother of a mammal, I'm trying to think of a mammal, let's say a, a horse. I don't know why I can't think of a mammal, but uh, <laughs> if you were to threaten her young in front of her, that she wouldn't feel um, some kind of either fear or anger or something like that. I mean, maybe, of course, it's not going to be exactly the same as a human in that situation. Um, but it seems like it would be something. So anyway, that's just kind of my my yeah. personal view on this stuff. And, and I think we're getting a preview of a lot of the difficulties in this field, that uh, so much of it kind of falls around these like undefined terms. Uh, it falls very much into consciousness land, because what, is it, what does it mean to be conscious, to have some subjective feeling? Is it only humans that have subjective experiences? And all of the other animals are just reactionary machines or whatever. Uh, that it gets it gets kind of interesting. But uh, so this Cannon and Bard idea of like, okay, there's not these specific physiological features, uh, and so James was wrong. Uh, there was this other group that came along that really kind of put these two theories together, and I think it kind of tied a nice ribbon around them. Um, because they agreed with Cannon and Bard. They said, this is uh, Singer and Schachter. They said, you know, there's not these specific signatures. Like physiology is way too complex to have just like this one physiological thing means anger or means happiness. Um, but James was right also that it does involve this labeling component that we feel something and then we cognitively label it. Um, and so their idea was that it all depends on context, right? That if your heart is beating really fast and there's a bear in front of you, you're probably scared. And your brain is going to come to that conclusion that like, okay, this context is fear. Whereas if my heart is beating really fast and I just won an award, then I'm not scared of receiving that award. I'm cognitively labeling that physiology as being kind of joy or happiness or whatever it may be. And this is kind of this appraisal process. And you can kind of see that in your own life when you, if you're feeling nervousness before some kind of event, something that you have to do, a presentation, a test, um, that, you know, some people will say, uh, like, make your, you've got butterflies in your stomach, make your butterflies fly in formation. I've heard that's pretty cheesy, <laughs> but, it's, <laughs> but it's like the idea that, that, you could feel very anxious about something like that, or you can feel excited about it. And maybe by appraising the situation differently, like I'm prepared for this. I've been practicing. I know that I can do this. I'm ready. I've done this kind of thing before versus like, oh no, I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, maybe somebody's going to ask me a question that I can't answer and maybe I'll just lose my place and I won't be able to continue. Like those are two very different kinds of predictions and appraisals about what's going to happen. And they could lead to two different emotional states, even if the feeling that kind of is there in your body is the same, or at least that's, that's sort of what this theory is talking yeah, about. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's really powerful 
right? It, it endows a lot of responsibility on you uh, that you are the interpreter of your feelings. Uh, my wife is a, uh, is a mental health therapist and like says a lot of what they do in therapy is like identifying your emotions, contextualizing them, saying like, why do I feel this way? Like get in touch with your body, like feel these things and try to understand what it's telling you about your surroundings and about who you are. Uh, but it puts the responsibility on you. And the really cool thing about having a frontal lobe and being a human is that we can actually reflect on that. We can actually sit there and say, yeah, you know what? This is different. Uh, and it's not this reactionary thing that might happen in other animals. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, uh, and, and meditation is another way that I think a lot of people get conscious access to the, the non-specificity of emotional feelings like and what i mean by that is by kind of sitting there without judging the emotion or about without labeling it uh you can start to notice that the difference between one feeling state and another isn't isn't all that great and um but anyway that's getting a little bit off track i think <laughs> we we wanted to talk about joseph ledoux who yeah. is another the, the, sort of another uh set of theory or another theory about about emotions and and i think that this can... this this really kind of ties it up uh, and uh, really kind of sets the stage for where we are right now because a lot of what we are talking about has kind of put things into perspective that like this is a very complicated thing right uh what's talked about a lot uh from kind of some of these modern theorists is that when we started to study emotion, we had these like folk psychology labels, uh, anger and happiness and sadness and all of these things. Uh, and we tried to use those labels to try to understand this really complex thing that is physiology, that is neuroscience, all of these billions of, of neurons that are firing and these, these peptides and hormones that are flowing through our body. Uh, you're taking really low dimensional labels, six things, and you're trying to put those six things onto this incredibly high dimensional space that has all of these moving parts. Um, and so it's really kind of helped to, to kind of work backwards now to say like, okay, what is the brain doing? And how can we use that to now understand our subjective experience and the way that we categorize and we use that for, for social things, for predicting how other people feel, for, for thinking about how our emotional state is. And Joseph Ledoux kind of proposed this idea that um, that kind of evolved these earlier theories uh, in context of the brain. It was this idea of, uh, he calls it the low road and the high road or the fast road and the slow road. But the idea is that when we, so we see the bear, right? That stimuli from the bear goes into our visual system. Uh, it goes first into these older kind of subcortical brain regions that have crude processing. They're still able to process stuff. Like that's really important to, to understand. And that was something that Andrew was mentioning earlier. Like, does the cat actually feel something? Because the subcortical stuff, that midbrain stuff is still doing some really powerful things. Um, and his idea was that we see this bear and we get this crude representation that goes through the midbrain, but it's enough of a representation to kick off a lot of this physiology. The amygdala picks it up and says, this is important. And the amygdala is really, really close to the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is what stores all of our memories, right? And so the, the amygdala can say, I have this thing that's big and furry with big teeth 
Like, is that <laughs> similar to anything that we should be scared of? Uh, and the hippocampus is like, yeah, uh, that's probably a bear or something like it. And so that kicks off all of these physiological things. Uh, the amygdala is also really tied up with the, the hypothalamus that kicks off a lot of the hormone release that gets all of these physiological processes in action. Uh, but then he has this other pathway that he calls the slow road or the, the high road, uh, where after all of this stuff has kickstarted, you have this processing that takes longer, that's out in the cortex, out in these regions that are making sense of the context and all of these things that are happening, that then creates this cognitive label that says like, oh, wow, like this is a really dangerous situation, like this must be fear. Um, and I think something to highlight, what's really kind of powerful about this idea is that it's a check and balance system, right? You see something that's potentially scary and your body goes into this fight or flight mode, but let's say that you're out on a walk, right? And you see something on the ground that looks like a snake and it's, it kicks these early processes into gear and it's like, oh crap, that's a snake, I need to run. But then the longer processing comes in and says, no, that's a stick right? Your frontal lobe now can turn all of that stuff off. It can check that and say, look, no, no, false alarm. But it's important. These systems are evolutionary adaptive, ev evolutionarily adaptive, because it's really good to make low risk mistakes, but it's really bad to make high risk mistakes. If that was a snake and you didn't react, you could have been in danger. But by reacting, you even though you might it might feel like a a false alarm, it's better to react to a false alarm than to be complacent when there's a real alarm. And um, you know, just another example of what you're talking about, uh, Robert Sapolsky, the neuroscientist, um, he wrote a book called Behave, and he talks about how this low road, high road, maybe this accounts for some of the you know, some of the police shootings that we see in the news. If a, if a police officer sees somebody um, holding something and it looks like maybe he's pulling out a gun, but it turns out to be a cell phone, well, the amygdala, that, that low road, is going to react as if, oh, that looks like a guy pulling a gun out of his jacket. Let's react right now. Shoot him. I mean, it's better to make that that low-risk mistake. In this case, it's not really a low-risk mistake, but... Um, but it sees it that way rather than wait to figure out what's going to happen. Is it a cell phone? Is it a gun? Um, so just kind of that's how some of this may apply to, to everyday life, because when you don't have enough time to actually process uh, what it looks like, what's the the um, Sapolsky calls it, you know, you're, you're operating in kind of the low resolution space. And then if you don't have time to for the cortex to access that and go into the more high resolution, see what's really going on, then you're going to react based on on what the low resolution uh, is telling you, which is maybe that's a gun, not a cell phone. Like a, a picture. I mean, the, I think the way to really conceptualize a lot of this is like the picture that the amygdala has is the picture that you took on a cell phone from like 1999. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and the the cortex is the picture that we have on these like super high tech cameras that we have now um, that's really able to bring in all of these different pieces together. Um, and something really important to notice too is that like these cortical regions, a lot of them are multimodal. And so they're combining information from multiple senses. 
Uh, and early psychology, early cognitive psychology, before we could actually start studying the brain, uh, they realized that we could study the brain through reaction time. Uh, and that was this really cool thing that like, it takes time for me to see something, for my brain to process it, and then for me to act. Um, and there's different speeds depending on how kind of risky the situation is and how fast you're willing to make that decision. Yeah, yeah. And this maybe maybe this now, now that we've started talking about the brain and starting with the brain and uh, thinking about working from the inside out about what is emotion. Now I think maybe we can get into some of these newer theories or the, the new debates over emotion. And uh, maybe we should start with, with Lisa Feldman Barrett, who many of you may have heard of. She wrote the book, uh, How Emotions Are Made. And she's really in this uh, constructivist camp. And um, she got there through uh, through her research. And, and, and some of that was related to what we were talking about with Paul Ekman earlier, where he and with Darwin, where they were saying, especially Ekman was saying that, well, you know, you've got these specific emotions, happiness, anger, fear, um, surprise, I'm missing one, but um, disgust, <laughs> and that they yeah. have these specific expressions that the face, you know, smile for happiness, scowl for anger, um, you know, the eyes wide open for, for surprise and fear and stuff like that. And she said, well, is that really true? Can we, can we, is that, is that the case that all cultures, all people, regardless of culture, have this same set of emotions expressed in this, with the same set of uh, facial uh, configurations? And, and it seems like yeah. no from her. Uh, yeah. And she, I mean, she did a review of like 20 years of the literature. Uh, and Something that I, I have a little bit of trouble with uh, in this domain is that, uh, and I, I haven't seen all of the studies that were reviewed, but I think a lot of them are like snapshots where you're shown a picture of someone's face and they're smiling or they're scowling or they, uh, and she found that like a lot of the times, if you have someone that has some kind of facial expression, uh, they may look angry, but then when you actually like zoom out and contextualize it, um, it's actually a feeling of like of joy uh, that, uh, it was just that in that moment, like that's what their face was doing. Uh, and she came to the conclusion that like facial expressions are not super predictive of emotion, um, which like I kind of see uh, because I think what's missing is a lot of the context because we use facial expressions with context, right? Like I know when my two-year-old is happy and I know when he's angry and I know when he's sad. Uh, and a lot of that is kind of facial cues. Like he, he looks sad when he's sad and, and he's like super happy and excited when he's happy. Um, but I think she was talking a lot about kind of, there's a lot of nuance there. There's a lot of people that will express different facial expressions during those emotions that aren't your typical smiling or scowling or disgust faces or things like that. Yeah. And, and in addition to doing that review of the literature, I, she did some actual like field research trying to replicate what Ekman did with the African tribes. I can't remember. The, these are like really primitive tribes that um, don't have much contact with Western culture. And she, she went in and did some of the same sort of thing that Ekman did, but she changed it where she didn't have the labels present. She had it. I, I think this is 
This was the big difference that she showed them the pictures and didn't give them any kind of options about what labels to apply to them. And she said, you know, what are the, what are these people feeling? What emotions are they having? And I wasn't fully convinced that that, that that refuted um, Ekman's argument because some of the, the uh, things she would say would be like, well, there's a person smiling and then you show it to one of these African tribes people and they don't say it's joy. They don't say it's happiness, but they might say it's laughter or that person's laughing. Mm. And so to me, it was, there was a little bit of like, okay, the, well, if somebody's laughing, then it's presumably like they're feeling good or joyous and like, and so it, it didn't seem to like cut to the heart of, of what Ekman's argument was, but with that review, that literature review, um, it, it is a pretty powerful argument against mm -hmm. the universality of, of basic uh, facial expressions for emotions. And I think something that really built a lot of her, I think she came from a lot of this switch in uh, how we study emotions. Because uh, if we're starting with these labels, right, especially if we're like studying the brain, um, we're asking someone like, how do you feel? And then they're saying happy. And then we're like saying, okay, that time point, they felt happy. Let's look for happiness. Um, and she was <laughs> like, well, we can't start with these labels because like the labels don't really mean anything. They're created by us, right? They're created for these social reasons to categorize these different ways that people act so that we can predict how they're going to behave, right? Um, and so they were actually starting to use a lot more of uh, these kind of continuum uh, approaches where instead of saying like, are you happy? They were saying how pleasant or unpleasant do you feel? and how aroused or not aroused are you? Not sexual arousal, like how awake <laughs> or not awake are you? Um, and with that kind of, uh, that landscape, you can plot all of these different emotions as being like, uh, so like joy and excitement is high arousal and pleasant, right? And you have like sadness and depression is like low arousal and negative. Um, and that coordinate space is able to categorize all of these things, but more on a continuum where instead of just looking for this one thing that's happiness, you're saying, okay, well, this person scored a four on pleasant and a two on arousal. Like, what is that? And where does that kind of fit into these things? Um, and I think that was kind of one of the things that, that started some of this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I think uh, one metaphor or yeah, that she uses is, is like, emotions are not these uh discrete you know okay so think of think of like a um a color spectrum and you could divide it up like the color wheel or just like blue green yellow and there's no continuousness between the colors it's just these slices of the pie that are individual you know wavelengths of light and she uh she said imagine like emotion the spectrum of emotion is like that color wheel now, the reality is that that color wheel is is a, a simplification because there is this continuity between all of the colors. Um, so it, it's kind of like how uh, this this is a real finding in perception that across cultures, we will kind of box in colors differently. So some colors or some some cultures will have more um fine grain distinctions between different shades of say blue than other mm -hmm. cu cultures. And, and that it's, if you come from one culture, you might not actually be able to differentiate between two of those shades, but someone from this other culture could. Um, and she's saying that's kind of what emotion is. It's like, 
if you look at the spectrum of emotion, we might cut it up into, you know, anger, sadness, happiness, uh, surprise, disgust. But another culture might, it might be a really similar spectrum, but they're just chopping it up differently. It might be more, um, you know, more fine grain or more uh, general. But I think that, that kind of gets at some, some of what she's talking about. Yeah, I mean, they, they talk about uh, some of the, the native inhabitants of like Canada and Alaska and stuff uh, can differentiate between like tons of different types of snow, whereas we would just say like that's that's snow. Uh, and I think a lot of it is kind of these evolutionary adaptive things that like if you're having to interact with a certain emotion based on how your culture is, uh, then you might have a finer grain distinction of like this is happiness and this is joy. Uh, whereas another culture might just say like, that's happy. Um, so, and she, I think something that's really important to, to point out, uh, cause Lisa Feldman Barrett is, is really big on trying to kind of understand kind of what consciousness is, what the brain is doing as a whole. And I think a lot of that has kind of been built on a lot of this emotion stuff that she's done, but she views the brain through a very predictive framework that the brain's job is to try to predict what's happening because the brain is locked in this dark skull. The brain doesn't see anything. It doesn't hear anything. It doesn't touch anything. All it gets are neural impulses and it has to guess what those neural impulses are. And she does these clever experiments or these clever things when she's talking and she's just like, you know, if I were to tell you, uh, think about the words that are coming out of my <laughs> you right the brain is predictive it's it's constantly trying to predict what's happening next it's trying to set the body up so that it can be successful in these moments um and so that's where this whole idea of constructionist really comes from is that there are all of these things that are happening in the body um and one of the things i actually really like about lisa feldman barrett is that she focuses a lot of the brain on the control of the body that most of what the brain is doing is trying to understand and kind of coordinate and govern all of these bodily processes that are happening. And so you have these things that are coming from the body that are crude signals. They're hormones, they're peptides, they're all of these things. Um, and our body has to then guess what those mean. And it has to use all of this other contextual information around us to, to kind of create that label. And that's very similar to what we were talking about earlier. She talks too about this, this sense of responsibility that we have, that like we are the ones that are defining and creating that label. Yeah. And she has this funny story in, in her book where she was on a date with some guy and she was really like feeling uh, really just just really intense kind of emotions with him and 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 then um like just these butterflies in her stomach and then she goes home and starts throwing up and has like food poisoning and that was all along that was really what was causing these really powerful <laughs> sensations but mm. in the moment she's interpreting it as oh this is some kind of like romantic uh feeling with this guy <laughs> and i like him and i don't know maybe i, I can't remember if it if they stayed together and I think she's married, but I, I don't know. If that guy. <laughs> uh, it, it's very similar. So there was actually, there was a study that was done. Uh, there was, I mentioned earlier Singer and Schachter uh, that were really big on this kind of appraisal process on like the labeling, like we're, we're referencing these physiological states, but then we're also kind of taking this contextual information. And they did this study that was really interesting. They gave all of these participants shots of adrenaline. 
Uh, and half of the participants, they actually told that they were giving them adrenaline. And the other ones, they told that it was just some like this vitamin thing that they were giving them. Um, and then they put them into a room with either uh, the guy in there was a Confederate. So he was a member of the study. And he was told, I want you to just be like really pleasant and agreeable and happy. Or I want you to just be like super angry and be a jerk. Um, and when they interviewed these people, when they came out and they said like, well, how did you feel? Like, tell me about your experience. The people that knew that they were injected with adrenaline attributed everything to the adrenaline. If they were feeling happy or joyous because this person was talking to them and being really cool and whatever, it was because of the adrenaline that they felt good, that they felt happy. If the guy was a jerk and they felt agity and like, and, and they just didn't like being there, it was the adrenaline. That's why they were all fidgety. But the other group attributed everything to the person. I was happy because that person was really agreeable and nice, uh, even though they were on adrenaline too, or I was really angry and agitated and upset because that guy was a jerk. Uh, and it shows the power of this labeling process. Yeah, yeah, it's, I, it, it is a powerful um, way of looking at emotions. But I think now I think we've kind of, I mean, I don't want to uh, blow past it if, if you feel like we haven't gotten uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's view or the constructionist. I guess she calls it the the so, social uh, constructivist theory. I don't think it really matters, but um, <laughs> you can see why this is a constructionist approach. You know, you're, you've got these bodily signals and then you've got the context, you've got your culture, you've got, you know, all these layers that uh, add up to, okay, this is this emotion. Um, it's not in her view, uh, you've got an anger circuit or you've got a, you know, mm -hmm. so, so I think if we've got a good view of that, maybe we should move on to the next big camp of, uh, of people. And I don't know, what do you think? Uh, Demacio yeah, yeah. or. Uh, I think Demacio is a, a great place to go. Uh, and, uh, I, I really, really like Demacio. What, what I think is going to be really important going forward is, uh, is that a lot of the listeners are going to notice that there's a lot of similarities between these and that some of the differences may seem kind of semantic in general. Um, but I think one of the big things to point out as we're moving away from Lisa Feldman Barrett is that she very much believes that emotions are human things, that they are cognitive, that right. we are creating this perceptual label, this perception, this image of that emotion um, and that the feelings themselves are affect. That yes, yeah, yeah. And she she puts a big emphasis on language. I'm glad you mentioned that because she says that you know she goes as far as you don't really have emotions unless you can categorize them with language with labels. Um, so she thinks that it's it's you it's specifically human. There's no other mammals. There's anything else that can actually feel what we call emotions. But like Taylor said, the, the feelings and uh, the, the affect and the, the valence are and arousal are felt by these other animals. Um, but it's less, it's not what we think of as emotion. Yeah. And that's where you kind of get into the weeds of some of this, like how things are defined. Uh, Cause if you were to say like animals don't feel emotion, it's important to put that distinction of like, we're not saying, or Lisa Feldman Barrett is not necessarily saying that like animals don't 
feel things um, or have some type of like phenomenological experience, uh, they just don't have the the tools to be able to create these categories and say like, I'm angry, I'm sad. So, yeah. uh, so I think we can we can kind of switch over to Demacia, which I, he is uh, one of my favorites. Uh, great speaker. Uh, I mean, I would highly recommend kind of watching some of his talks. Uh, he very much focuses on homeostasis, that homeostatic control is kind of the basis for emotional experiences in general. That the brain's job, uh, which is similar to to what Lisa Feldman Barrett was saying, that like the brain is still referencing these physiological things. Uh, but I think Demacio's big point is that these feelings are specifically for creating action plans in the world. Yeah, yeah, and th there's definitely overlap there uh, between the mm -hmm. two because uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett also puts uh, emphasis on allostasis, which is subtly different from homeostasis, but both are kind of this idea that the body and the brain or you know just biological systems need to be in certain within certain ranges so they have these different variables like you know blood pressure um heart rate uh you know the amount of glucose in the bloodstream and those kinds of things that need to be tightly fairly tightly regulated they have a a range that they can be in but the 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 way that Demacio talks about it is that the fundamental the brain's fundamental job is really to maintain homeostasis. Um, and that could be in, in like a really short term, just changing the, the heart rate, but it could also be a longer term thing. Anyway, I think I kind of got off of the, uh, his, his view of feelings as being motivators of, of behavioral states. Yeah. And that's, I think, what I was getting at with, with action plans, that uh, you, have, you have Lisa Feldman Barrett's that's kind of saying that, like, the brain's main role is, like, predictive in nature, is trying to kind of understand the circumstance in the world, uh, whereas uh, Demacio is very much saying that, like, the brain's main job is to move through the world in a way that maintains our um, disequilibrium. Uh, and that's kind of important to put into context, right? So, equilibrium if something was in in pure equilibrium we would be dead um we as living things need to be constantly consuming energy and and getting rid of uh waste and constantly be in this state of disequilibrium um and it's within like andrew was saying these these parameters these thermal regulation parameters we need to maintain body fluid uh we need to eat and maintain nutrient balance uh we need to defend ourselves from predators uh, and so Demacio very much is, is on this line of these very conserved uh, behavioral regimens that have kind of uh, gone through evolution, that like there was an evolutionary adaptive way of uh, the body producing this feeling that then produces an action, right? That like this, he calls it the somatic marker hypothesis in some of his earlier work, like Descartes' error and things like that. But um, it's basically this idea that these physiological responses, these feelings are somatic markers. They're saying like, this is something that is going to inform the way that I choose what I do next. Um, and if you go on Lisa Feldman Barrett's website, she's very explicit that like, she doesn't think that emotions themselves are for action plans. Yeah. But, it, and then, but then that, that's like subtle because he's, mm -hmm. 
he's saying something very similar to what she's saying um, at, at like a lower level when you're talking about feelings as he now, I think now he refers to his feelings as monitors of the body. And um, uh, that's really similar to what, what Lisa Feldman Barrett is saying that feelings are kind of, and I may be confusing these two, but she's kind of saying that they're, they're readouts of the, the, um, the bodily, the body's state. And that, that she's not, it's the, like, then I, I, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit unclear on where those two diverge. Cause it seems. I think that, that I think Tomasio, <laughs> I think Tomasio thinks that there is a little bit more specificity to some of the feelings that, um, that they themselves can kind of initiate a lot of these kind of behavioral repertoires and things that we do. Um, whereas I think that from a constructionist view, like we as the agent are taking these feelings and kind of creating all of those plans based on that, that there's not this kind of innate thing that the, the emotion is, is priming all of these things and setting us in a certain trajectory with our behavior and getting certain action plans in order that then we can kind of like, as, as like conscious agents, we can kind of reflect on and we can say like, okay, is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? But the feelings themselves are kind of marked in a way, like they are certain things that tip us in one direction or the other, especially with like, he talks a lot about like decision-making and the importance of like, uh, that we tend not to be very rational creatures when you really think about it. When you're sitting there like deciding whether or not you want to choose this thing or choose that thing, um, a lot of your decision is based on your gut feeling, on the your state, right? And that that is actually like biasing you in one direction or the other in a way that you don't have a lot of control over. Yeah, yeah. So I guess he he puts more emphasis on kind of the the subcortical um, earlier evolved structures as having more devoted behavioral programs uh, wired into them, whereas Lisa Feldman Barrett might put more emphasis on the cortex and its interpretation of the feelings arising from those lower brain structures. And this is, this is kind of what we hinted at, right? There's, uh, there are these different camps, but these subtle differences seem to be kind of very semantic in nature and how we're defining kind of what the feeling is or what the emotion is. Um, and I think one of the, the big distinctions, I think that Damasio also is not very much in the, the camp of like, there are these like specific innate basic emotions, uh, but is more kind of along the lines of like, there are certain physiological states that kind of put us in one direction or the other um, that that we then can kind of categorize. Uh, something that I, I really like about Damasio is a lot of the focus on kind of this regulatory stuff, because it's very in line with the way that I think about things like the cha my channel, The Cellular Republic, is based on this idea that the brain's job is to kind of govern the body. Right. And it's what I see emotions as are kind of the headline news, right? It's like the body is projecting to whoever's leading, whoever the awareness is that like, there's something going on down here. Like my toe hurts or like uh, I have a stomach ache or whatever. And it's something that captures attention, right? It's something that we don't really have control over. Like uh, the leader of our country, well, 
however you think, uh, doesn't have control over like what the headline news is, right? That if there are certain disasters that are happening in the country, it pulls the attention to that. And those feelings are then kind of guiding and directing our behavior uh, in a way that we can't really ignore them. That's very, yeah, that's really good. That, um, well, I, I don't want to like uh, give short shrift to uh, Damasio, but we did want to make sure we talk about another theorist um, who passed away a few years ago, but is well known in the field named uh, Yak Pangsep. And I think this is where we kind of go from, I feel like Damasio is sort of between Lisa Feldman Barrett and Yak Pangsep. And, um, and he is definitely more on the side that there are uh, devoted circuits behind um, fairly specific emotions, uh, but he, he, he talks about them at different levels, about primary, secondary, tertiary levels. Um, but he says there are these circuits for the, the primary emotions, and he's, he identifies seven of them which is definitely sounds a lot like um, uh, Ekman's seven, six or seven basic emotions, but they are different. So uh, maybe we'll go through those, but is, did you want to say anything about Pongsep before we do that? Uh, yeah. And I have a, I have a comment from Bruce too. So emotions are motivators uh, and emotions bias us because they change how we filter um, information. I think that's, that's really well in line with uh, is that our attention it gets pulled in certain directions based on how our emotions are kind of changing the direction of that spotlight. Um, but yeah, with Panksepp, uh, he did a lot of animal work. And I think he was, he was really important in kind of showing that like, maybe we can study emotions in animals. There's a lot of uh, debate around whether that's true because he was looking at behavior and looking at like how they were reacting to certain things. Um, but he used these electrophysiological things to activate these, these circuits that would cause the animal to behave in a certain way. Um, and yeah, uh, Andrew mentioned that there were seven of them. Uh, so there's uh, a seeking uh, circuit that when you activate it, they get really curious. They start looking around. They're motivated to explore. Uh, he talks about the, the human version of that being desire, right? Um, there was one for rage that when you activate and like, there's a, there's a ton of research across different animals that when you activate this circuit, they get super aggressive and they'll attack the other animals in the cage. Um, and it's conserved through all of these different mammals. They've seen it in chickens uh, that like there are behavioral repertoires that are associated with lighting these circuits up. Um, so I'll do one more and then I'll let, uh, I'll let Andrew do the, the other ones. But, um, the other one is kind of this, this fear circuit that when you activate this circuit, uh, they instigate these kind of freeze responses, these fearful responses. Uh, you have a lot of researchers that are like, we don't know if they're actually experiencing fear or we're looking at as their behavior, but it, it looks like they're in this kind of fearful response. Um, and that's kind of similar as he would put it to our feelings of anxiety. Right. Yeah. And uh, before I go to the rest of them, I just also wanted to uh, recognize uh, Martian or, or Martian. Uh, hello from Mozambique. Well, it's good to have you. That's really cool to know. Yeah. yeah let us know where you guys are watching from. And um, but yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the, the next one was lust and sex. And um, yeah, he uh, talks about how this is 
I mean, it, it would make sense that that this I, I think this is an interesting one because lust doesn't seem to have made its way into other discussions of basic emotions. Weirdly, uh, it seems like that would be kind of uh, one of the I mean, like, uh, you know, Freud put it at the center of his understanding yeah, right. of psychology. Um, but maybe that's why maybe people just avoided it because Freud is a little bit taboo, but, um, but lust and sex and then the, the care and maternal nurturance was another one. So, uh, that this system for, for that, that is largely has a lot to do with the oxytocin system. And I've talked about oxytocin on my channel before about, uh, how it can facilitate social interactions. And it's very important for parenting. And he talks about how oxytocin can sort of activate or at least um, uh, potentiate this circuit for care and maternal nurturance. Um, and it's not restricted to mothers, like it could be fathers and, and even, you know, friendships when we're caring for our friends or uh, for, you know, just a person on the street who needs it. Um, the next one, really interesting, grief, and actually he puts this in the same bucket as panic, which is really weird uh, to me. I mean, most people I think would put panic, put it more related to like fear and anxiety. But he says that there's evidence that when people are having panic attacks, it's often triggered by this, um, this grief circuit, this grief system gets going and that... Uh, Panic attacks are often uh, correlated with having had um, uh, traumatic childhood events. Um, so maybe there's something to do with this separation distress that that uh, underlies our experiences of, of grief and um, panic. And then the final one is play and physical or like, yes, yeah, so play or the physical social engagement. So he talks about how natural play is to um mammals of all kinds, social mammals actually only, and uh, how rats will go through this very specific sequence of um, playing rough and tumble with their partner until one of them pins the other, and then that's it. But also, not only that, it's um, that the, the stronger rat will sort of um, concede, will, will allow the other, the weaker rat to win sometimes. Um, so it's, it's kind of, it's not competition really it's this natural behavior of play and i guess the 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 thing that that like taylor mentioned is that these aren't strictly speaking emotions these are behaviors that we're observing in other animals and which are the result of us stimulating these largely subcortical circuits um and, and I think that one of the big distinctions, uh, so you have Lisa Feldman Barrett that's like, there's no emotional circuits, uh, I think can kind of fall into this kind of semantic area where like, these might not be emotion circuits, if you're defining emotion as just this purely perceptual cognitive thing that we have as humans. But I think that it's talking about these being main drivers of behavior, especially evolutionarily, right? That we had to create these repertoires of behavior to survive certain situations, to adapt to certain social situations. Um, and I think one of the most powerful things about Pengsaf's work is that he's shown in all of these different animals that when you light these circuits up, they behave a specific way. Um, and I think that that is kind of, kind of culminates a lot of what we've been talking about that emotions themselves are these kind of 
these motivators of behavior in general. Um, and that, I, I mean, I personally think that, that my dog uh, has an experience, a feeling experience of life, um, and that those feelings are very much driving his behavior. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and I guess the, the final point on that is that uh, Pongsep doesn't say that emotions have to be directly tied to homeostasis. Yeah. And that is really, I think, what differentiates him from Damasio and Lisa Feldman Barrett. Although it's interesting because presumably these circuits light up in a situation when the organism needs to do something for its own survival or well-being in general. And so in, in the sort of Lisa Feldman Barrett allostasis point of view, maybe they are tied to homeostasis in a, in a more indirect way, but um, yeah, that's kind of speculation on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he gives the example of like a mom putting herself in danger to save her child. Like that is not for homeostasis, right? That is this emotionally driven thing that like, I want to protect my child and I'm going to put myself in danger to do that. Um, and so he very much believed that some of these emotions were different types of drivers than just kind of this Demacio homeostatic thing or this purely perceptual thing. Uh, you have Panksepp talking about like you have this primary feeling of emotions, uh, but then you have the secondary of like using those emotions to actually learn about your environment. And then this kind of tertiary, this third level of then actually trying to form this cognitive perception of it. And so I think where a lot of this distinction is between these is that like, Lisa Feldman Barrett seems to be kind of in the tertiary version of this, but still kind of believes in these other ones, but just calls them affect instead of calling them emotions. Uh, so uh, this has been uh, a wild ride. This was really cool. There's, I know this was a lot of information, but I hope that people got kind of a different, more nuanced view of uh, how they might feel. Like Andrew said, like really picture that those feelings that you have and now reflect on them in a different way. And like, feel the responsibility and the power that you have to really kind of appraise them, to contextualize them in a way that's beneficial for you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, as kind of a final point, I think, you know, looking at those various levels, the primary, secondary, tertiary can be really, really helpful in, in what we we're just talking about, kind of the introspection. And because um, I, I do think that many of us have had maybe a, a rage experience or like a panic attack where it just doesn't feel like there's any real cognitive control over that. It just seems like this is arising from some very deep well of emotion. Um, but then there's the the more subtle, the, you know, you're, you're uh, watching a, a really good movie and you're just getting these, this subtle uh, flow of emotions that aren't necessarily, it's definitely not rage, it's not panic, it's not, um, you know, lust, really. It's, it's these the more this more like interpretive and you have to get into the mindset of other people. And I think mm -hmm. that's more on that tertiary side of, of building it up and, and the cognitive evaluation. Yeah. I like that a lot. So uh, I think uh, definitely let us know if you guys want to hear about a specific topic, we'll put that in the queue. We can talk about it on future episodes. Um, but also a good way to, to help us out is to subscribe to both of our YouTube channels, uh, to leave comments and like whatever podcast station you're, you may be listening on. Um, but also, I also have, my wife uh, runs an Etsy shop. She sells uh, like psychology and neuroscience and data science themed shirts and mugs and stuff. So 
uh, check it out. It'll be in the description of the video on my channel. So, all right. Awesome. <laughs> all right. Well, it's uh, good. Good talking with you all. Hope you have a great rest of your what's today? Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. See you guys. All right. See you.